is PRN.FM, your source for progressive radio that makes a difference. And welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. Eastern United States. But we're global since we're on the Internet, so you got to figure out the time in your part of the world. And you can catch our back shows, including this one in a couple of days, at visionaries.podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N is in Nancy, dot com. And be sure to download our app for your smartphone. So today, I was going to talk about two topics, and I was going to sleep last night, and I realized I can't talk about those things. <laughs> you can't talk about that. So I'll talk about some other stuff. And I'll, I'll I'll be very careful and talk a little bit about those two things. And the two things were, number one, uh, archetypes and spiritual feminism. And um, my late wife was a spiritual feminist, and I'll talk about what that is. But <laughs> talk, saying anything about men, women, uh, gender, <laughs> sexuality, uh, uh, spirituality is fraught with problems in, I, I guess it doesn't matter for most people, but I'm in academia. <laughs> so we're very restricted in what we can say compared to other people. And so I was thinking about that as a topic, and I'll go into it a little bit. And then uh, yesterday I pick up the Sunday New York Times book review section cover story. Altered States, Michael Pollan on Writing Under the Influence, and Jonathan Latham on the latest fictional drugs. So <clears throat> it's all about psychedelics. Well, I make a point on this show of not talking about myself personally. Although uh, if one were to be very diligent in uh, in, in researching the past— I wrote quite a bit about this topic, and I, you know, it, it's been something I've been aware of and thought was important. But I'm not sure what you're about allowed to say about it today. Uh, you know, we are talking about illegal drugs, which, is, you know, how weird is that? Uh, I mean, I can't believe that anybody. I mean, I look at uh, someone like a uh, religious conservative, um, Ben Shapiro. Totally libertarian on drugs. He says, I think they're stupid. I think people who do them are losers. But it's your business. Um, and that's sort of where I stand, although I think some of them might not be uh, stupid. But i got to be careful in saying that, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, I uh, have former students who are now prominent architects who spent a Couple one of them, a couple of years in jail <laughs> for being caught with uh, with uh, marijuana, which is now you know <laughs> dispensed everywhere. 
uh, you know, it's it's in a it's in a <clears throat> transition phase at the moment. So medical marijuana is illegal and is legal in some states. Recreational is legal in some states more and more. But, you know, here's this stuff <clears throat> which you probably shouldn't overdo. Uh, probably anything like that that's overly ingested, and God knows what's in it when you're ingesting it. I mean, you're burning some weeds and inhaling it. God knows what's in there. But uh, <clears throat> doesn't seem to have the effects that cigarettes or alcohol have. And people's lives are ruined over it. People to this day are serving long jail sentences about it, while other people are picking it up at uh, a dispensary. So where is that at? I mean, it's just stupid. So, <clears throat> which leads us to psychedelics. And uh, Michael Pollan is the author most, re- most recently of How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. So he wrote this book, and somehow the timing was right. Um, you know, there have been people, I remember proposing a book on uh, psychedelics to my agent 50 years ago. <laughs> it was too early <laughs> or too late. I'm not sure which. Uh, but anyway, the uh, uh, now's apparently the time. Because I've heard Michael Pollan on on um, national public radio, and nobody's freaking out. It's a, this is serious stuff. It's used in psychotherapy, uh, but notice how we can't take something seriously. We can't be unless you put the the label of medicine on it. Well, it's used in psychotherapy as medical, like medical marijuana. Uh, do we have medical alcohol? I don't know. You know <laughs> there's a phrase from uh, movies from the 20s and 30s, purely for medicinal, purely for medicinal purposes. <laughs> As somebody pulls out their flask. Anyway, um, so uh, psychedelics are now being taken seriously. And Michael Pollan wrote this book, Surveying the Field. I guess. I I mean, I've heard him talk about it. I haven't read the book. And I don't know if I will. We'll see. Uh, If we do, we'll see if he wants to come on the show. But anyway, um, here's this thing that, you know, people prove they're able to uh, get um, therapeutic, psychological therapeutic benefits in psychotherapy, okay, cool, but where is that at? What do psychologists know? Who who put them in charge? I mean, think of all the things psychology has been wrong about. Uh, let's you know that uh, uh, women uh, cannot participate fully in <clears throat> all spheres of life. Uh, it'll damage their weak brains. Um, it's a prominent idea, early 20th century. Uh, then uh, psychoanalysis is totally weird, 
totally perverse notion. Uh, one of the one one intellectual figure in the forties once remarked, "I distrust any theory that tells me my neighbor to the left is hostile and aggressive because they have an inferiority complex, and my neighbor." to the right is meek and withdrawn because they have an inferiority complex. I mean, what 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 the hell kind of a theory is that? You know, that that um what you know, like um psychics. Um now, uh so uh there's a woman in your life, right? Yeah, I thought so. And she's a blonde, no she's a brunette. Yeah, I didn't think she was blonde. I thought she was a brunette. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh you know, people are skilled at doing that, including psychoanalysts. Well, uh, having spent time in psychoanalysis <laughs> uh, in school with a real psychoanalyst, I later figured out that my, uh, my condition was caused by being in Philadelphia. <laughs> and actually... <laughs> There was um, so I went. I, I grew up on Long Island. Spent time in New York City, and I go to school in Philadelphia, and I and at University of Pennsylvania study architecture, and I figured you know Philadelphia is a real city. It'll be like New York, a little bit smaller, and but so I got the the daily. What did I get? I got the daily New York Times and the Sunday New York Times subscription as a student. And then I also got the Sunday Philadelphia Inquirer because I figured it would cover the Philadelphia theater and art scene. <laughs> I discovered there wasn't any Philadelphia theater and art scene. So <laughs> so this, I got there in 1959. I mean, Philadelphia is a terrific city today. If, uh, if Penn were to offer me a teaching job there, I'd go in an instant. I mean, it's a beautiful little city. But at the time I was there, that city did not have a paperback bookstore, did not have a, uh, uh, a an art movie theater, you know, with, uh, well, it did have one, but it was perpetually tied up with a Bridget Bardot movie. Uh, and so I had to go to New York to see Fellini, Antonioni, Godard, uh, those movies just never got to Philadelphia as far as I could find. Anyway, um, so I, in in design studio at Penn, we were working on a mental hospital. And uh, with a very interesting professor, uh, Robert Geddes, who is now, I think, around 95 years old, and just a couple of years ago, he gave a talk at Penn that I was at, and very sharp guy, very influential on me in a lot of ways. He was my thesis uh, critic. And he had uh, become an acquaintance of Humphrey Osmond. And Humphrey Osmond was a, uh, a medical doctor and psychologist and the person who introduced Aldous Huxley to LSD. <laughs> so, uh, and there's a book about him, Understanding Understanding, uh, produced by, what's his name? Uh, he's the one who did um, The Medium is the Massage 
with McLuhan. I seem to be a verb with Bucky Fuller. So he took these um, prominent intellectuals, the, the guy whose name I'm not thinking of, uh, took these prominent intellectuals. Maybe it'll come to me while I'm babbling along here. Took these prominent intellectuals who had written uh, important but opaque books <laughs> that the ordinary person couldn't read and uh, worked with them to write a book that explained in terms that the ordinary person <laughs> could understand what these prominent people like Bucky Fuller, Marshall McLuhan, uh, et cetera, um, were talking about. He did the um, the a movie... On, he did a book, I'm forgetting the name of it, something like uh, Filming 2001. He did with Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. So he was quite Jerome, Jerome Agel. Jerome Agel. So anyway, Jerome Agel did a book with Humphrey Osman. And Humphrey Osman was interested in the um, mental state, particularly of schizophrenics, that, you know, they had. Um, now, he was very open-minded about mental illness. You know, he said, uh, think of it in terms of uh, some people have certain difficulties, and so how can you set up uh, circumstances so that they can negotiate these difficulties? So now imagine a mental hospital, and you've got people with these difficulties. And how would they—what um, would make things— um, what would make things more negotiable for them, work better for them? And what our studio, what, what he suggested for our studio was to s establish a series of hierarchies that a person would have their own private room and then uh, four or five or six of these rooms would be clustered around a little common facility that might have... Uh, you know, a mini fridge, uh, coffee pot, uh, lounge chairs, etc. And these people could come out of their room and relate to a community of four to six people. You know, that's something they could handle. And if it got to be too much, they go back to their private room. And then you have, say, four or five of these communities of four to six people all relating to a, a common day space. And so now you could leave your group of four to six people and uh, interact with a group of 30 people, uh, 20 or 30 people. And there would be facilities that, you know, a library, you know, I mean, a shelf of books, um, uh, whatever. And then you've got six or eight of those, which constitute the entire mental hospital, and they would share outdoor space, a gymnasium, an auditorium, uh, a cafeteria, stuff that a larger community would share. Well, the um, um, our, our professor, Bob Geddes, uh, actually got this project published. My late wife, uh, Mimi, who I'll talk about in a minute, uh, Mimi Lobel, um, her project was uh, was published along with 
one of our other classmates in progressive architecture, and it was actually my my other classmate. Um, what's his name? Slipping my mind right now. A really important guy um, was his project was on the cover because he had a great model. Anyway, um, so uh, Humphrey Osmond, um, you know, was talked about how there's a similarity between certain kinds of mental illness and psychedelic drugs uh, was something he was interested in, was writing about, was researching. And uh, he said it was really scary giving uh, LSD to uh, to um, Aldous, Huxley, Aldous Huxley, one of the great intellectual minds of the 20th century. What if it screwed him up? <laughs> it would be my fault. Anyway, uh, it's coming around again. And uh, Michael Pollan did this book. And he did this two-page essay. That's really big for uh, the book review section of the New York Times. Magazine section, sure. But to have two whole pages in the book review section, the major story. And what he's talking about in this article is how do you describe, how do you write about, what, um, what it's like <laughs> to be on psychedelic drugs? And maybe, um, the, you know, obviously it's every trip is different and it's different for every person. But maybe in common, we could generalize and say that now this is a topic that I, I can't talk about. So I'm not talking about it. Anybody listening to this show, it's not happening. Uh, wouldn't want to get back to my school because I don't know if this is on the forbidden list. But anyway, um, what so one of the things that happens is your ego disappears, your sense of self. So we we perceive the world from our point of view. I'm sitting here in a studio. There's a mic in front of me. I'm looking at. There's a lot of clutter here, isn't there? There's uh, four mics on the table. There's uh, several sets of headphones lying around, the little terminals in which the mics and headphones are plugged into. There's a uh, tripod with a video camera. Uh, there's some stuff on the wall for backgrounds for various shows. And uh, all of this I'm seeing. So it's now we can get into heavy duty uh psychological perception and philosophy. So let's skip that and not be overly sophisticated and say, there's a me who sees all this stuff. And so this stuff is in my perception for me. Someone else is going to see it a little bit differently. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with some of the things in front of me, so I know what a microphone is. But someone who doesn't know what a microphone is might see you know, might see differently. There's stuff here. I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm not even seeing those things. What's that? Hmm. <laughs> you know, because uh, there's all kinds of techie stuff here I'm not familiar with. Now, what happens is that me from which you're perceiving can go away on a trip uh, with a psych psychedelic drug. And, of course, they're all they're different for different people, and the different drugs are different. Uh, 
you know, psilocybin is different from LSD. Um, <clears throat> I like to think LSD is the purest. Um, unlike, uh, <laughs> you know, cactuses, which you smoke and inhale, and then you puke your guts. <laughs> and then finally you get high. <laughs> you know, with LSD, you, you can skip the puking your gut stuff. You go right into the purity of the high without the, uh, without the stomach upset. But the so now what does it mean how if there's no me to perceive uh but, but I don't disappear the world doesn't disappear uh, it's still there i guess or i'm there or something's there or something's happening well that's the difficulty of describing um you know what what is that how do you describe that and uh, so michael Pollan in this uh two page essay in the new york times which really struck me. I mean, <laughs> the New York Times, they know about LSD. <laughs> they know about psychedelics. Wow, what happened? Uh, so, and they're devoting two pages to it. And interestingly, there's no apology. You know, you might expect an introduction that says, uh, now this is illegal and should and and is dangerous and uh, should uh is now occasionally the food and drug administration will give licenses to highly qualified psychologists in highly controlled laboratories to do very restricted research and maybe someday there'll be some benefit no it just flat out you know what and then the next article which is only one page, which is still a lot for the New York Times, uh, by Jonathan Latham, a preliminary pharmacopoeia. Well, this is really a hoot because what this is about is the appearance of, well, I would say psychedelic type uh, drugs in fiction and including particularly in science fiction so that um, you know, uh, you might have seen the movies, two movies that I've mentioned. I'll mention them again, Limitless and Lucy. So in Limitless, there's a guy who's very smart, but totally disorganized, uh, spends all his time at the bar, and is um, his girlfriend, you know, the, the they're friends, but she says, look, I just can't handle this anymore. we got to break up. And uh, so she dumps him. He's got a contract for a, for a, uh, a book. I think it's a novel. And he's written maybe, you know, one paragraph of it in two years. And uh, his agent is about to uh, cancel the contract and ask for a return. I mean, his, publish, his editor at the publisher is about to ask for his uh, – a return on the advance, and a uh, I a brother of his girlfriend or something like that, um, who's in trouble, into weird stuff, uh, working with a shady pharmaceutical company, gives him a pill, and this pill uh, suddenly he's super smart. You know, it frees up his brain. It allows him to use more of his neurons, whatever. But he, I mean, he just, 
uh, around the clock in, what, 24 hours or something like that. He's just banging away at his, uh, at his computer keyboard as fast as he can go, whips out the novel, drops it off at the publisher. She's blown away. Um, and then uh, his, the guy who gave him the pill gets killed because there's other people that are chasing the drug and all that kind of stuff. He discovers the stash, and you got a movie. Excuse me, you got a movie. Well, <clears throat> that's the kind of drug. One of the kinds of drugs that, although it doesn't send him into other metaphysical dimensions, it just he's still the same person in the same world, but more. Um, two other movies like that is Wolf I mentioned before with Jack Nicholson, in which he's a smart but mild-mannered uh, chief editor at a small publisher that's being bought out and he's being pushed out. And he doesn't have the gumption to fight back. And he's driving one night in, in, in his BMW, which I noticed being a guy, right? You see the grill in a, uh, a lonely country road in Connecticut and he hits a wolf. And he gets the, the the animals down. He gets out of the car to look at it. It jumps up, bites him, and runs off. Ooh, it was a werewolf. He's now got these powers. You know, his sensory perception is heightened. He can uh, he can sense what's going on. He can smell in on people where they were the night before. Who's sleeping with whom? He can hear conversations in other. Um, rooms in the office uh, complex, and he uh, puts together a strategy. And there's plots ups and downs. Stuff happens, but you know, <clears throat> actually, um, won't tell you the end. But uh, very satisfying. Excuse me. <clears throat> now the other, um, the other thing that comes to mind, of course, is Lucy with uh, Scarlett Johansson which she's a student in, uh, where, Malaysia, something like that. <clears throat> Let me just see if I've got a uh, printout of that while I'm jabbering away here. And uh, no, But anyway, here we go, Lucy. Uh, Hang on. Taipei, Taiwan. <clears throat> so she's tricked by a good-for-nothing sort of boyfriend into carrying into a, a building a briefcase, which is locked and handcuffed to her at this point. And um, so <clears throat> turns out a drug company has recruited a bunch of uh, couriers we're going to have a, um, it's not a condom, but think of a condom, which is typically used by drug dealers uh, smuggling, you know, in the stomach, uh, a, um, a, uh, a condom full of this blue powder, a strange drug uh, that she's, she and a couple of other couriers, unwilling but stuck, have surgically implanted into their bellies and they're going to smuggle into uh, key cities around the world. 
Well, she gets kicked in the gut. Uh, the package explodes, and a massive amount of this drug gets into her system, and she gets super abilities, kinetic, telekinetic, telepathic. She can read minds. She can move objects. Uh, and it's a race between her and the bad guys, and she's going to evolve into the next uh, the next stage of human development. Uh, so that's the kind of books mentioned here. Let's see what we got in this uh, in this review. Um, uh, likely, it was Don DeLillo who inherited this great pivot in white noise with Dialer. An experimental capsule advertises a cure for the fear of death. A veritable fictional pharmacopoeia followed from David Foster Wallace, DMZ, George Saunders, Furbulence, Jonathan Franzen, Mexican A. In these writers' hands, the self's integrity is under assault, not by illicit, illicit indulgences, but by capitalism's imperative to market us shiny neurological upgrades and by our complicit desire to be thus reworked. In the past year or two, a fresh wave of must-avoid <laughs> prescribables have flooded the bookshelves. Were I to play chipmunk and shout warnings from this stage, the first bad pill I'd warn you off might be Vernix, from the title story of Deborah Eisenberg's new collection, Your Duck is My Duck. I studied the small white pills Christina had given me. They were not very alarming. Swaddled in their tissue, they hardly seemed to count. Cut to the next morning. I wrote someone an email in my sleep. <laughs> anyway, um, get the New York Times. Uh, dig up your New York Times from yesterday. Um, if you don't have it, go online. <clears throat> the book, re- the book, just you know, you'll find book reviews in the Times online. But it was interesting to me that <clears throat> the Times would write about this, and uh, and what this is about. Uh, you know, a drug like um, marijuana will uh, eh, hopefully calm you down, make you mellow. A drug like cocaine will uh, hop you up. Um, a uh, Someone I knew, so I don't know if they still do, <laughs> but uh, years ago, uh, someone I knew was in uh, in the uh, financial world at a trading desk, and they would all meet every morning, and the uh, boss would give out uh, cocaine to everybody. So they could be super hyped and super aggressive and super productive in their uh, in their work. But psychedelics are different. It doesn't make you more or less. It doesn't make you calm or hyper. It changes what we in the world are metaphysically. You know the fundamental what I am. Uh, and what the world is, and how we relate, and whether or not they're two different things, who knows, um, is totally altered. 
And uh, so the point of the first essay is how difficult it is to describe that because there's no, you know, <laughs> there's no reference from which to describe it. And <laughs> famous, the famous description is Aldous Huxley, Huxley after Humphrey Osmond gave him uh, LSD. He wrote the book Doors of Perception. And uh, one way he describes it is we see the world through our perception. Uh, and our perception is structured, and it's now called uh, cognition. I remember when I did my uh, master's thesis, I looked at how different cultures saw, experienced the world differently. That's, to me, the definition of a culture, how you live in, manifest in, experience, create the world. And different cultures do that differently, which is what I'm going to talk about next, because you're not allowed to talk about that. The other thing I'm not allowed to talk about at my school. So so nobody from school listened to the, the show because I'm not supposed to talk about this stuff. But anyway, um, so Huxley describes as imagine a camera, and in the old days when there was film, today is a sensor, but we still have lenses, and the lens uh, organizes the light coming in. So you can have a wide-angle lens, a normal lens, a telephoto lens. You could have a special effects lens. Uh, you know, you used to buy these filters that would create a starburst of images, you know, so you can see the world the way a bee does with, uh, you know, a thousand different images, um, etc. Now imagine you take the lens off. The light just hits the film. There is no... Uh, structure of perception. There is no perception. It's just directly, boom, the world's there. Now, <clears throat> it's more likely that you're perceiving it differently, but that's one way to describe it. You took the lens off, <laughs> and it's one of the ways Huxley describes it. But anyway, psychology didn't know about this in the uh, mid-60s when I was writing my thesis. And Psychology was dominated by <clears throat> behaviorism. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Skinner. He's not the most important behaviorist, but he was the most prominent. And <clears throat> behaviorism held that there is no mind. Uh, there's simply behavior. To talk about what's going on inner in the mind is mysticism, mumbo-jumbo, not science, not permitted. And it totally dominated psychology. I mean, this is what everybody who studied psychology was a psychologist um, in America, an experimental psychologist, uh, believed, did. I don't know how they could, you know, believe this stuff, but they did. And so I did my work with anthropologists, started with Marshall McLuhan, but then anthropologists like Carpenter um, and then European phenomenologists like Merleau-Ponty who and uh, the uh, European Gestalt psychologists, um, a very uh, important figure that no one today has heard of, 
Anton Ehrenzweig, uh, psychoanalysis. What is it? The psychoanalysis of something in art. Um, anyway, you'll find you'll find it in the back of my book, um, Visionary Creativity. I've got a, an annotated bibliography. Psychoanal- oh, psychoanalysis of artistic vision and hearing describes how and why music is different in different cultures and different periods, as well as visual art. You know, um, Picasso is painting that way because that's how he saw. Um, African art looks like that because that's how they saw. Um, so anyway, uh, brilliant, uh, important book. But psychology is now caught up with this a little bit. Uh, not a lot of respect for that field. And uh, so it's called cognitive psychology and has... <clears throat> Uh, nobody claims to be a behaviorist anymore, unfortunately. And they're making a little bit of progress. But unfortunately, psychologists keep leaving it to everybody else. You know, like I think um, Ray Kurzweil coming from the position of computer science in how to create a mind uh, knows a lot more than any psychologist, uh, as does on intelligence. I'm forgetting Hawkins. Uh, something like that, uh, the book on intelligence. He just came out with another update to his theory, Hawks, something like that. And uh, uh, psychologists have, like, abandoned psychology. Anyway, um, psychedelics give us a way to think about that. So the other big failure of psychology, the other topic I can't talk about today, is archetypes and spiritual feminism. So why don't we take a break? Um, Let's uh, just take a break, and we can uh, uh, run to the bathroom. And so we'll take a break and be back in uh, just two minutes. I'm Gary Knoll, the founder of the Progressive Radio Network. Today we have more than 80 producers bringing forth the most progressive and most liberating information, the kind of information you do not regularly hear on any of the mainstream or alternative media. You can help us now. Up to this point, I have virtually supported the Progressive Radio Network, all of its expenses and payroll, myself. But we would like to expand our reach. We'd like to do far more. We'd like to be able to advertise on Facebook and let others know we exist. We are the number one progressive radio network in the world. In fact, we have programs that are most listened to in all of progressive radio. But we could go a lot further. Our message could reach a lot more people, especially at a time when people are desperate for honest, objective insights on the important topical issues of our day. How can you help? It's simple. Go to prn.fm. Go to our main page. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a little button, Support Now. And then whatever you can contribute on a monthly basis will make a big difference. It will help get the message out. 
It will help inform more people, give them more choices. This is where you'll hear in the independent candidates and the people looking to challenge the corruption in government and industries. But we need to get our reach out further. So please, whatever you can afford on a monthly basis, and there's some suggestions there, and it'll be automatic. All right, thank you very much for continuing to help us help you and the rest of the world on these important issues. This is John LaBell. You're listening to Visionaries at PRN.FM on the Progressive Radio Network here every Monday at 10 a.m. And we're talking about two topics I can't talk about. (laughs) Uh, So the other one is archetypes and spiritual feminism. And I come from a a background of, um, oh, well, Mostly on this topic, uh, a lot of Joseph Campbell, some Carl Jung. Campbell gets some of it from Jung, but Campbell's much more coherent than Carl Jung in understanding cultures. And uh, so I look at cultures as integrated belief systems and symbolic, uh, symbolic constructs. Culture is a symbolic construct. And different cultures are different. That's why there's cultures with an S. And so I've uh, taught that way. I taught a course in non-Western culture. And we look at the African uh, architecture of the Dogon, and, but also at their culture. And then at uh, Chinese architecture and culture, Japanese architecture and culture, Islamic architecture and culture. And, and looking at these, Look at the the way these cultures experience the world. Well, I'm not teaching much of this stuff anymore because uh, I've been told that's uh, not politically correct. Uh, <clears throat> apparently, I don't know what my colleagues are thinking, but <clears throat> apparently all people are the same. The only differences are some of them were abused by colonialism and some of them were colonialist abusers. Other than that, uh, we're not to talk about cultural differences because that's stereotypes. Well, you know, if you make any generalization, it's going to be a stereotype. (laughs) There's an architectural historian, Henry Russell Hitchcock, who would simply describe each building. (laughs) Boy, is that not get anybody anywhere? I mean, we want to learn something. Let's say, you know, pick something. Gothic architecture. <clears throat> there are certain general characteristics. There are certain reasons why they built those cathedrals. There are certain features that most of them have. Um, there's a certain range of experiences that these uh, buildings produced on the people who built them. And we don't have those experiences, feelings, needs today, which is why we don't build Gothic cathedrals today. 
we build what? High-rise skyscraper office buildings, whatever. And so <laughs> we're different. We have a different ex- different experiences. And we can maybe recall some of what a Gothic cathedral meant to the people who built it when we go into one. But our experience today is different. And we can understand this through archetypes. Um, and um, my late wife, Mimi Lobel, <coughs> wrote a book which is pretty pretty extensively founded in <coughs> what I called in my preface uh, spiritual feminism. And she was... Um, you know, involved with feminism. She wrote the book in the uh, 70s, mostly. And so she was, you know, involved with part of second wave feminism, new key figures in the field. And, but then there were a group of women who were interested in the goddess, which is uh, shorthand for spiritual feminism for a totally different way of um, experiencing the, the uh, spiritual qualities of our relationship to larger realities. And these women were totally accepting of uh, what I'll call political feminism, which is the feminism we're familiar with, equal rights for women, uh, women coming into men's roles, uh, etc. But it didn't work the other way. The political feminists were often not very accepting of the spiritual feminists. Um, I remember Gloria Steinem being asked, um, does, uh, how was it put, um, is the female psychically is the female psyche spiritually different from the male psyche? Something like that. And the question just used two words that totally don't exist for Gloria Steinem or feminism, political feminism, and that is spiritual and psyche. Um, So the feminist attitude was religion has been abusive to women. Why would we want a new one? And the idea of there being a psyche, of there being, oh, a spiritual layer to one's consciousness is totally absent in uh, modern American academia. And uh, it's just meaningless terms. It is there for people in the arts because there's no other way to to talk about, understand what medieval art was, Renaissance art was, modern art was, the— spiritual psyches of the time and of these artists were different and they produced different arts. Well, so I'm lecturing this way. Uh, At one point I was talking about the West and uh, um, China and Japan. Different attitudes toward nature, how we're a traditional China and Japan, not China and Japan today. And uh, how 
what a human being is, how we relate to nature, how we emerge from nature or stay integrated with nature, and how attitudes about this are different in these different cultures and how that's very clearly manifest in the architecture. So you look at uh, Andrea Palladio's Villa Rotunda, and here's a self-contained, uh, bilaterally symmetrical building on top of a hill dominating its landscape, implying the centrality of the individual human being uh, looking out over, observing, understanding, and dominating its landscape and nature. And then you look at uh, Katsura Imperial Villa. Now I'm picking two different buildings that, you know, you can argue if it's uh, fairly representative or not. But that's what I picked. And Katsura Imperial Villa is asymmetrical, uh, meandering, integrated into its landscape. The walls just disappear. The walls are sliding panels, and where they um, are slid closed, they're made out of rice paper. Uh, They're made out of paper. So there's not a strong separation of inside from outside, human from nature. Um, There are various porches where you sit and view nature. Um, So here are these two different architectures very much representing two different um, cultural points of view. Well, I was told I had to correct that lecture, um, which I, you know, won't go into that. But that's just not accepted today. So I'm thinking about, or uh, I lecture on the Dogon. Dogon is this really nifty tribe in uh, Mali in West Africa. And there's a major Dogon collection in the Metropolitan Museum. So when you're, you go to the Oceania and Africa collection, you'll see Dogon. Very distinctive art, uh, quite collectible. A lot of it is affordable. A lot of people have uh, Dogon works. <laughs> Poor Dogon. They were very smart. They located in a place where there's no water, no oil, no gold, and no uranium. <laughs> so they've been left alone. Uh, the only problem is every spring, the uh, French art dealers swoop in and buy all their art. <laughs> so they don't have very much art around, with which money they could then afford you know, they, they weave these very tight baskets for carrying uh, grain and even water. And they could buy Tupperware bins, you know, made out of plastic that won't, you know, make it more convenient. Well, they, they don't. They won't. You know, they're like, think of the uh, Amish who have a certain cultural way of living and avoid technologies that will disrupt that way of living. So they're going to like that. And their mythology is very strongly presented in a book called um, Conversations with Ogotamali, uh, written by a French anthropologist who interviewed him. And uh, here's a, a very integrated way of seeing and understanding a traditional culture. Well, that's not welcome either. Uh, we, can't, we have to talk about post-colonialism. So, okay, I mean, boy, could we do both? But anyway, um, just to quickly finish up, um, there was a passage I had in my preference to my late wife's book on spiritual feminism. 
in which I contrasted it to um, to uh, political feminism. Now, central to archetypalism, that there are archetypes. It's very tricky. Let's see how much I can get in in uh, five minutes. But let's just do essentialism, and I'll pick up on the rest of this in a future show. <clears throat> but <clears throat> most of Western thinking, and maybe most of human thinking, until the latter half of the 20th century was essentialist. So that, for example, there's an essential nature to a tiger. Um, tiger is this, that, and the other. And before Darwin, tigers were always there. Um, not sure where they came from, uh, but they probably weren't going anywhere unless they were hunted to extinction. And um, But we now say, no, there is no uh, essential nature to tigers. Um, the tiger is descendant from animals in the past that were different, will eventually evolve to animals in the future that will be different, and hmm, uh, are genetically very close. You know, they're almost genetically identical to lions. You sh- shouldn't do that, but shoot a tiger, shoot a lion, skin them, you can't tell the difference. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, there is no essential tiger. And so now, if that's the and so where this comes up in feminism is there is no essential femaleness. Because uh, if there were essential femaleness, then there would be a proper role for women and a proper role for men. Well, one of the current thinkers I follow is Jordan Peterson, who thinks this way. Uh, he's uh, somewhat of a Jungian. And he refers to um, the masculine principle as being order and the feminine principle as being chaos. Uh, my late wife is really put off by that kind of thinking. comes from Carl Jung. She had a totally different uh, take on it. And she saw essential f- feminine archetype as inclusiveness and the essential of both uh, order and chaos and a lot of other features that I'll go into in a future show, and essential uh, masculine nature as divisive of the two. So the idea of dividing into uh, pairs of opposites is the essence of masculine thinking. So with that, let's wrap up. We'll pick up on this in another show. Hey, have a great new year. This is John Lobel. You've been listening to Visionaries on Progressive Radio Network, prn.fm. See you next Monday.